I want to go to the book of Matthew today, and I have a word for you that's very pertinent and very practical for each one of us. Jesus came to rescue us from our sins. Sinfulness is a condition, a human condition shared by all, but Jesus came to bring a great breakthrough and a deliverance. There's a happiness here. There's a joy here in the tonality of true uh, Christian life when we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that we take it from just the historical, just the theological, just the symbol, and we take it personally. The writer of Psalms said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And as harsh and as challenging as life is and as it's been in the last couple of years, I think we should take a special note in a moment just to focus in on who Jesus is as a person, what Jesus has done, why we celebrate Easter, And I'm just really, really glad we could be here together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help me to make this clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 17, New American Standard Bible. Uh, Jesus is at a place called Caesarea Philippi. My wife Patsy and I have been there a number of times. Uh, It's a place over in the Holy Land where 2,000 years ago, people gathered in this place for interchange of discourse and discussion about religious things. This was really in the early days when the information superhighway was just a a footpath, uh, and that most of the information, give and take, was uh, the FaceTime, and uh, uh, not the FaceTime of FaceTime now, but actual literal FaceTime, okay? (laughs) Got to get the terms right. And, um, And yet, news of him had traveled. News of him had traveled, and opinions were being formed. And Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi where they talked about pantheism, all these different viewpoints, all these philosophies. And he is asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What's what's popular thought? What's the crowd saying? What's the general consensus? Generally, what are the people, you know, what's being said? So, Verse 14, they said, they, somebody spoke up and said, well, some say John the Baptist. And then somebody else said, I've heard people say you're Elijah, you know, the Hebrew prophet, or Jeremiah, another Hebrew prophet, or, or one of the prophets. It's an interesting question. Back after World War I and World War II, my wife and I lived in England after Bible school in 1980 in Liverpool and, and Stoke-on-Trent, and we saw the bombed remains of the... Uh, cathedral in Liverpool that they've allowed to stay the way it was, having been blown up by the Nazis. The harshness and the impact that it had, you could see it on the building, but more on the people. There became a wave of discontent. Uh, what emerged out of post-war, not after, you know, if World War I was enough, but then World War II, it was like they couldn't come up for air. And there emerged philosophical dismissiveness called existentialism, where People, Frenchmen like John Paul Sartre or Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard or others, thought, you know, life is just existence. Because there's no God, we just have to figure out how to survive. And, and it became morbid. And um, I was in an English composition class in college, and the teacher had embraced this kind of thought. And he had, a, he had been teaching us about this. And he said, class, your assignment is to write a 500-word essay on why life is empty, meaningless, and absurd. I scratched my head because I was a brand new Christian. I had given my life to Jesus as a teenager in what they now call the Jesus Movement in Southern California in 1972. 
uh, hitchhiking from my restaurant job at one o'clock in the morning. And I had prior to this asked God, if you're real, please show me. Because I was in an identity crisis because culture was so agitated. There were racial tensions, there were socioeconomic pressures, there, there were gas wars and oil shortages, there, there was an anti-war element, there were people coming back broken from Vietnam, addicted to struggling with heroin and things like that. The hippie thing that was idealistic failed with the hard drugs and, and the decadence and the immorality was having its consequences, creating a massive amount of confusion. And it got me praying, God, if you're real, show me. I, I later li- moved in the Missouri, the show me state, but then I said, God, I, I need to know, I, I need to know. And thankfully, God sent not one, but two people to communicate this simple, essential message of Jesus, the rescuer who came and suffered and died as a substitute for all of humanity. He was willing to make a trade. I'll take all of your sin and everything that cancels you and alienates you, and I'll nail it to the cross, and I'll cancel that certificate of debt that's held hostile against you. And there will therefore be no condemnation anymore over you. You'll no longer have a guilty sentence hanging over your head. I didn't know it then, but I was being convinced and convicted of my sin. But that also, I didn't know this, but that righteousness was available, that I could actually be right with God. And that's the essence of this message. And that's, the, that's why C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien, Tolkien from South Africa, who wrote, as you know, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and so forth, he was desperate in his life. He, he had procrastinated. He was having a hard time finishing that work. I'm glad he did finish because it's just laced and filled with aspects of redemption, of the clash of right and wrong and clear distinction. These literary scholars emerged out of this, this pessimistic dismissiveness that culture, you know, was saying, now there is no God. And they came out and said, you know, I need Jesus. Tolkien led uh, C.S. Lewis to the Lord. And God began to move on these guys. They met at a pub over in London, and, uh, called, and they were called the Inklings, meaning uh, they were writers, they were literary guys. And it's amazing how God touched these guys who were of high degree of intellectual aptitude, but they weren't getting it from their intellectualism, and they weren't getting it from society around them. Society was veering off its course and going into the darkness, and yet these, these guys realized, wait a minute, there is hope. There is a God. That's what happened to me when I was hitchhiking home. A Vietnam veteran turned to me and told me that Jesus changed his life. That in hand-to-hand combat and fighting and the terrible issues of his personal work being drafted, they, they dishonorably discharged him because he got involved with substance abuse and became addicted to heroin. Think about it. A thankless, he came back to a thankless country and he was dismissed. And he came back broken. He came back and tried Eastern religions. And he said none of them worked. None of them helped him. He cheated on his wife, he said, and his wife left him. His heart was broken. And then he turned to me and he told me that Jesus changed his life. And when he told me that, it went right over my head. I had no point of reference. I didn't understand it. I had never experienced it. I told him I went to church because my parents brought us. I asked my dad before he died. They took us to about 35 churches. We were the Christmas and Easter guys, but then we would go to different, we church hopped everywhere. And we never really plugged in until I became a Christian when it was, I, I had an encounter with somebody like you who was wide awake, who was genuine, and who had actually experienced a change. Up to that point, it was just theory. Up to that point, it was just historical. It was, it was just even theological. I've, I've been reading about Friedrich Nietzsche and how his father was a Lutheran pastor 
in Germany and how he died when Friedrich Nietzsche was young and it was disillusioning to him. But what was worse is he went and enrolled in a seminary and at that time there was something that had pervaded on the earth called higher criticism, similar to what was happening in the morbidity of, of post-war Europe uh, later on, that he encountered a place that didn't really believe the Bible was the word of God, that didn't really believe in the claims of Jesus Christ. And it was very dismissive. So not only was he broken from the loss of his father, but then he was now broken because he was the loss of, of a heavenly father. And he's the guy that famously said, God is dead. Easter, however, declares that he's not dead. He's risen and he's alive. And because he lives, we can actually face tomorrow. Because he lives, we don't have to live in morbidity and we don't have to live in hopelessness. And Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? He asked Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You nailed it, you got it. Blessed basically means way to go. You got it, you nailed it. He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, I had a flesh and blood guy tell me about Jesus, and that was part of it. But then there was this amazing engagement with a God who was actually answering my prayer, and I didn't even know it, reaching into my life when I, couldn't even, I wasn't even familiar with it. The Bible says, I read later on when I became a Christian, that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, convicts the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Well, I already knew I was sinful. I felt the conviction. But I had no idea that you could be made right with God. And that was the message of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis back in the day, in the midst of all this existentialism. Remember that teacher that was trying to have us write that story? I, I raised my hand and I said, sir, I can't write a story. I can't write a 500-word essay about how life is empty, meaningless, and absurd. He said, why not? It's because I don't believe life is empty, meaningless, and absurd. I believe it's full, wonderful, and awesome. He goes... Uh, well, then write a paper about that. So I said, okay. So I, I toiled over it. And I, I the 500-word essay, you have to tell them, and then you have the body, and then you have the conclusion. And then each paragraph starts with an aspect of what your introduction says, and then you reiterate it at the end of the story. I took that class, I wrote that paper, and I turned it in, prayed over it, and I shared the gospel, how Jesus changed my life. And so in class, he said, there are a couple of papers I want to read. And so he began to read my paper to the class. And I just was panicked. You know, I thought, uh, first of all, I was insecure about it, you know. And I, he read it. And then, amazingly, he said to me, I would like to, to know if you and I could have lunch at the cafeteria uh, sometime this week. I said, excuse me? Th this had never happened to me. Uh, the instructor, the, the professor asking. And I said, well, he said, because... I'm fascinated when I find somebody that has experienced hope and help and change in their life. And I just want to, I want to pick your brain about it. I went, okay. I'm this young kid. He's this mature, developed uh, teacher. And we went and got our trays and we sat down and he just started asking me to answer these kinds of questions. You know, who, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So I basically was able to reiterate to him what I had heard from the Vietnam veteran and what I'm telling you. Jesus changes lives. Jesus brings uh, help for the sinner. Jesus is the healer that heals. And he's personal. And he's relevant. And he's available today. And no, he's not just the figurehead of a religious institution. And no, he's not just somebody from antiquity that the ancients had to kind of 
put together some sort of hero worship to cope with and survive with the difficulties of life. Jesus is everything he says he is. And when Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, as a Jewish person, he's acknowledging all the volumes of Hebrew prophecy that foretold about a rescuer. Like when Adam fell in the garden and forfeited all this connection with God and was banished, Jesus is ultimately going to come and bring restoration. Uh, It's awesome to me. It's absolutely amazing. And Jesus says to, to Simon, he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I'm telling you, through whatever, God is building his church. I heard a great man say that 2021 would be the year of the local church. I certainly believe that for where I'm planted in this place. I hope you're believing for that. I've texted and contacted a number of pastors from all over the world the last few days. My heart is for them, and my heart is for the local church. My heart is for individual believers that they could see and come to know in practical terms this resurrection power, the supernatural provision that Jesus has provided. I'm grateful that when I prayed, God wonderfully answered my prayer and sent two different people, one to invite me to church, one to communicate evangelistically to me on my way home from my clerk job. I smell like shrimp, by the way, so he, you can't unsmell that. He, he got the raw end of the deal. He said, you work at a restaurant? I said, how'd you know? <laughs> but God, he still nonetheless preached the gospel, even when I was reluctant and I was somewhat dismissive. He said, I used to think that too. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the way. You see at the doorways, there's an exit sign, a green light exit sign. Jesus is that green light exit sign. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me with your confusion. In the brokenness of the post-war Europe where there was rubble everywhere. If you don't believe me, Google it and look and see Prime Minister Winston Churchill after the bombing, walking through the neighborhoods with piles of rubble and see the brokenness and the dejectedness that happened during that time. A lot of young people think nobody's ever had the kinds of struggles or troubles like we've had. Look, my Aunt Eileen was born in 1898. She went through World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, Vietnam, Korea. She went through a lot of stuff. She went through the Spanish flu of 1916 when she was 18 years old. Uh, Don't say it's just been, oh, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Throughout the ages, since Adam and Eve fell, it's been trouble. And yet Jesus came to bring restoration. Jesus didn't come to put shackles and bondage on people. He came to set the captives free. He that the Son sets free is free indeed. And that actually is the correct language of faith that we need to understand if anyone is in Christ, We become a brand new creation. Hey, I got rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard. I got rescued when I was lost at sea on another occasion out in the middle of the ocean. I got rescued drowning in a swimming pool when I was a pre-teenager. I got rescued in the ocean when I flipped and I lost all my breath and I couldn't breathe. I fell off cliffs. I stepped on uh, two rattlesnakes. Not one, but two. Two. Two rattlesnakes. It's a miracle I survived my youth. I'm I'm living on borrowed time. I'm alive from the dead. Not just once or twice. You're looking at Lazarus. 
And it's my story, but I want to tell you, whatever your story is, Jesus loves you with the same intensity. Jesus cares about you with the same interest. Jesus has passion for you with the same affection. He said that we could cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. Believers know that, and it's ringing true. If you're like me or my brother where we were, we'd go to church and it was kind of foreign. I couldn't wait to get my Easter basket. My main thing was, I don't want a hollow bunny. I want a solid bunny. <laughs> I saw that symbolism. It was peculiar to me. The, what's all this religious part, though? Why church? Why all this singing? Why all this? And most of it was pretty beige. It was kind of bland. People didn't seem joyous. Everything was sort of stayed. But man, I'll tell you that when Jesus comes into a situation, like he said to Peter, he said, whatever people say, what do you say? And that's, in fact, what I want to bring to you right now. Please turn to, to uh, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, quickly. This is a scene on the cross, and, and Jesus is between two thieves and a cultural crossroads in the hands of Pontius Pilate and the harsh Roman soldiers. He's been brutalized. I, I think that it's notable the, the mistreatment that he had to deal with. Jesus suffered. When he was reviled, when he was challenged, he didn't defend himself. He didn't revile in return because he knew, in fact, he was there on a mission to seek and save that which is lost. Somebody came and laid down his life for all y'all. And when I was a 16-year-old lost kid, and I prayed and asked God to reveal himself to me. He did. And I'm that same guy. And I'm not a professional minister. I'm a saved person communicating that there's hope for you on a practical level. Jesus came to save us. And I'm under instruction to reiterate this one more day. That this is the New Year's Day of the church because he is risen. He is alive. He is present to help. He hears and answers prayer. He heals. He delivers. If you're depressed, man, don't get stuck. If you're in anxiety, don't stay stuck. I'm telling you, there's hope for you today. Luke chapter 23. This is an amazing, rousing moment. Jesus is suffering. He's been crucified. He, he had to haul a cross so, so difficult that somebody else had to come and help him carry it up the hill. That's how serious and how heavy it was. His burden was so heavy, not just because the physical cross was heavy, but he was taking upon himself my sins, your sins, the sins of the world. People say, who killed Jesus? My sin killed Jesus. Your sin killed Jesus. Why did he die? Because God had a plan to restore broken humanity. Adam failed and fell. Jesus came and is resurrected. He paid the price for our sins. He who never sinned took the guilt sentence that we all deserve. The result of sin is spiritual separation and death. I had that morbid death. So did that Vietnam veteran. He had that death. He was addicted to a terrible substance. That was the first cycle of heroin addiction. Now it's rampant again. He had experienced such a harshness, he just wanted to numb himself with what was available. And he just numbed himself and medicated himself. And, and yet, he was, it wasn't satisfying, the hunger that he had in his heart. And he drove me 10 miles out of his way and dropped me off at the top of our neighborhood out there in Southern California by the orange and lemon groves up on the base of Mount Baldy, up in the smog area of what's now called the, the, the Inland Empire. And he, and he took me up to the top of my street and dropped me off. And he said, hey, you, uh, you want to talk some more? I said, no. And instead of 
being offended or instead of trying to cram it down my throat, he said, okay. He said, can I pray for you? I said, yeah, and I got ready to go out the door and he said, Father, if what I told Jeff is true, reveal it to him. In Jesus' name, amen. That's all he prayed. Then he took some literature, he gave me something to read, which I later did, and it clarified what I'm telling you. Who do men say that I am? Well, who, who do you say that I am? And this made distinction that Jesus is actually fully God and fully man. He's the unique person of the universe. He came to, to seek and save that which is lost. He came, according to 1 John chapter 3, to destroy the work of the devil. He came to undo what was forfeited by Adam and Eve and restore to bring us back into a potential to know God. Right out there on that, that patio, years ago, a man turned to me and he said, I was an atheist, but I'm not an atheist anymore. Right over there, there was a man from Japan who was a Buddhist who brought his wife here for two years. He announced to me, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Buddhist. I said, well, we have a Buddhist section in our church. He said, really? Where? I said, anywhere you sit. And he came for two years. He was a research scientist from Osaka, Japan, spoke fluent English, had an impeccable education, did not have a clue about who Jesus was. From the context of Buddhism, there's no concept for a personal God or the necessity for repentance or, or sin and so forth. He, in this environment of ease and of love and acceptance, found Jesus. Right here, a man named Jim came told me he was an agnostic. I said, okay, well, I'm a believer. I'm not going to cram it down your throat, but I'm not going to hold back. I believe Jesus and his claims, and I, I'm going to tell you I'm going to work to try to get you saved, but I'm not going to put it down, cram it down your throat. He said, okay. I said, you okay? You okay? You've been honest with me. I'll be honest with you. He said, okay. Jim later gave his heart to the Lord, and he's been serving him all these years. My checker at Schnucks, Damien, he came in with his mom, and they dedicated themselves to the Lord, and his dad was an Orthodox Jewish surgeon, had set up an appointment with me I, 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 at my office. I was, I was pacing the wooden floor praying, oh, what's going to happen? And, 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 I, and he came in and he was humble. He was concerned about things that were going on. He, he's thinking about his Judaism. I'm trying to tell him that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises through the Jews. John chapter 4, Jesus said himself, salvation comes through the Jews. I'm telling you, I'm just entering into the covenant that's provided for you by, through your people. I just happen to be, by the grace of God, included in on what is really, it comes through you. you. And he said, well, okay. And he came for two years. And he gave his heart. Jesus. He gave his heart to Jesus. And that's the biggest deal for me. I, I want you to know that there's something valuable about stepping up and responding to what Jesus has done for us. He asked this question, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Look here in chapter 23, verse 38 through 43 quickly. Jesus is up on the cross and they put a plaque with this inscription above him, this is the, the king of the Jews. That was his crime, that he was the king of the Jews. And they wrote it in Hebrew, and they wrote it in Greek, and they wrote it in Latin. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him. There are three wooden crosses saying, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Are you not the Christ? And so it's mocking. Like, can't you get us off these crosses if you're such a big shot, if you're so who you say you are? Mocking. But the other answered and rebuked him. Now these guys are dying and he rebukes his friend and he says, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. This is the conversation these two are having. And here Jesus is in the center, I think. And 
He said, we're guilty. Why would you mock him? He said, uh, we deserve this for our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, in one of his last breaths, in one of his last actions on the earth, said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It just underscores taking it from what man, what people say, what conjecture says, what the deluding persuasive arguments are, what the dismissiveness is. Let's, let's dismantle this. Let's advance. Uh, human, humanism says that it's centered on humanity, and it's like, let's just throw away this, this uh, mythology or this, uh, you know, these contrivances or this superstition. Let me tell you, the reason Christianity has endured the reason that it had such a profound impact where the Roman Empire was deteriorated and a little fledgling group of people launched out of Jerusalem and shared the gospel with the Roman Empire and with the, the Greeks and the Romans and then for that matter all the nations is because of the substance and the power and the value of what we're celebrating this weekend. Jesus on the cross suffered and died in your place and in mine. And in this modern movement that we see, we see a cancel culture. We see a behavior right now that it, it, it is so dismissive and so harsh. Uh, it's, a, it's a modern form of ostracism. And uh, when somebody is thrust out of, of a social or professional uh, circle, uh, whether it's online or social media or per, in person, we've seen it. It's fascinating. Those who are subject to this ostracism are said to have been canceled. I looked it up in the Urban Dictionary, and it said uh, it, it's, canceling is defined as to dismiss something or somebody and to reject an individual or an idea, to dismiss something or somebody and to reject an individual or an idea. The cross was so harsh, and it was a statement of shame, and it was a statement of we're throwing you away, we're devaluing you, we're cheapening you. It reveals something of the harshness of society. Apparently, both the Roman society and the legalistic Judaism lapsed into and were practicing cancel culture at the time of Jesus. But in a redemptive sense, God allowed this to come upon his son in order to liberate all of those who believe. Cancel culture, as it is currently, uh, doesn't really give people a chance to learn from their failings, to repent, to, 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 to change. Case in point, I think of the woman that was caught in the act of adultery and how people, self-righteous people, were getting ready to cancel her and stone her. And Jesus was there and he intervened. He scribbled some things on the ground and we don't really know what he wrote, but he said to all the people there, let him who's never sinned cast the first stone. That's how Jesus dealt with cancel culture. That's what he was saying to the self-righteous. He was saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You could see each person drop the stones and walk away. It saved this woman, and Jesus made a comment to her. Woman, where are your accusers? She said, nowhere, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, this is Easter. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. For God didn't, pay careful attention to this, 
The next verse, 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You see the lost Jeff Perry in Southern California alone in his bedroom praying to an empty sky with a, like a barrier over my life, which I realize now was my sin. And yet God in his mercy heard me call upon him. God, if you're there, show me. And sent wide awake believers to me to communicate good news. We're all responsible to communicate good news. And boy, there's never been a better time in cancel culture to let people know, yeah, I'll tell you what was canceled. 2,000 years ago, Jesus took our sin that was canceling us and breaking our fellowship with God, and we were ostracized because of it, and he nailed it to the cross so that we could be free and experience fellowship with God and have an amazing assurance through the course of our lives. Hallelujah. Let's finish with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm white hot with this, you guys. Just give me a couple more seconds. I'm doing great. If you're visiting here, I'm early right now. I'm telling you. If you've been here, this is a miracle. This is an Easter miracle. I'm even staying on my notes. It's a miracle. Jesus came to eradicate our sin condition and set us free. And there are three things I want you to, if you're a note taker, I want you to get a hold of this as we get ready to go. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the amazing chapter of Paul the Apostle describing the value and importance of the resurrection. He said, now in verse 1, I, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. It's one thing to receive it. It's another thing to stay with it. Today's message is take it. If you haven't gotten saved, get saved. Today's the day of salvation. Yes, you. He loves you. Whether you're a Japanese research scientist, whether you're a Jewish surgeon, whether you're a pragmatic agnostic, whether you're an existentialist, whether you're a literary scholar, whether you're suffering and struggling and debt or sorrow, whether you're in the middle of a divorce or you just lost your job, I'm telling you the Lord Jesus cares for you and loves you. Young people, I was disoriented in my youth days and God answered my generation with something called a Jesus movement. The, the church had lapsed into religious formalism to a degree and God visited and brought fresh fire to the body of Christ. He brought churches back into wholesomeness and value and breakthrough. He brought young people out of degradation and lostness. He threw us all together in such diversity. If you want to know where diversity is, it's in the church. Little kids, medium-aged people, singles, married, widowed, divorced, from all worried, widowed, divorced, come to me. He said, whosoever will, let them come. Who do men say that I am? Blah, 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 blah. Really doesn't mean anything, but what do you say that I am? And that's what was posed to me in that car, 1972, when the guy said, what are you going to do with it? And I was like, uh, uh, nothing right now, dude. You know. And I went home, though. And in the privacy of my own room, Jesus got a hold of my heart, and I got changed. I then got connected in church. I've only been to a couple of churches my whole life. I'm not a church hopper. I plugged in. I got under the people God had led me to get under. I got good teaching. I had the good fortune of having good teaching. I found my destiny. I found my wife, raised my kids. I've, I've developed relationship. It's not all been easy. You know, we're like a bunch of porcupines. The world's crazy. Porcupines all come huddled together in the harsh winter. Can you imagine? All these quills sticking each other. That's the church. 
And then he says, hey, just like a bunch of porcupines in a bag all trying to stay warm. And, and he says, hey, sort it all out. You know, talk amongst yourselves. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Oh, I love watching online because I can just play it anytime. I can, I can watch you in, in my, my cutoffs and flip-flops. You can come to cutoffs and flip-flops anyway. But just come. Connect. Spend some time with this. This is more important than planning a vacation or your, or your retirement or any other such thing. We need to put our focus and pay attention to. And, G, and Paul said, you know, you received it and now you're standing in it. For by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the truth. It's documented in God's word. That's why the tragedy for, for Frederick Nietzsche was when he went to, to seminary, they were saying, you know, they, what do men say that I am? They're all this heady philosophy. We just are dismissive of this. This, you know, we don't believe it. And can you imagine? We don't really believe Jesus. This, it's allegorical. It's, it's metaphor. It's you know, many, uh, many heroes with the same, you know, many faces, the same hero kind of thing. Dismissive. And here's this guy, and it, a critical moment. It seized upon his life, and it didn't turn out so well for him. But for the for the Corinthians, there had been a life change. They realized they were brand new on the inside, and Paul was urging them to stay with it. I think I'm urging some people today to not let apathy come. The complacency of fools will destroy them. We've got to be cautious. We've got to not uh, uh, submit to the persuasive arguments and let people delude us. And we personally should learn to be doers of the word and not just hearers who would delude themselves. So these are warnings and admonitions we all need to consider and we trust God for his grace to help us through. But here's what I want to bring to you today. The pra on a practical level, number one, let's look at verse 20 here. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now prior to this, he's given a warning in verse 13. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, and I wish they had read this to Frederick Nietzsche in the seminary, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. This was what the devil tried to beat. If you can't beat him, join him to try to water it down, neutralize it, numb him down, get him all philosophical and yield to uh, uh, deception. And Paul is saying, look, if, if we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. This is kind of a tongue twister, double negative, but what he's basically saying is, oh, we're all a bunch of phonies if this isn't real. I would not have stayed with this thing if it was false. I was, I'll just party hardy. I wasn't going to get, get in. I've heard people say, well, even if it's not true, then you've lived a good life. If it's not true, it's false, then you've not lived a good life. But the fact of the matter is, this is emphatically the truth. Jesus is the truth. He came to rescue us. As realistically as when the swimmer jumped out of the helicopter, swam to the boat, and began to minister first aid to, particularly the one that almost died. It was real for me. And I'm telling you, what Jesus did is even more real than that. 
I literally got rescued, lost at sea. I was lost at sea, and somebody found me in a miracle, needle in the haystack, miraculous moment. And that is actually minor compared to the major of Jesus coming in as a rescuer to save us from this invisible yet dark and harsh result of sin. Look at verse 25. It says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, this is what I want to get over to you, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. We had to have somebody step in and take our guilty sentence. God sent his son, and he laid down his life for us. Jesus died. This is the essence of Easter. Somebody came to sort all this out. I've done over 1,000 funerals. By the time I was 30, I had been in the room with several people as they died. I have faced death probably as much as someone in the military, maybe even more, because I've been at this for 40 years. I went into a room once and a man asked his, his wife and his adult daughter, politely asked him to leave, and then drew me to his bed and began to cry. He said he was afraid, afraid of dying. I had to reiterate to him about this message of hope and help in Jesus. We prayed a reinforcement prayer of faith and things got settled. On a Saturday, I was preparing between Friday service and Sunday, and God prompted me to go visit a man that I had found was dying in the hospital. Wasn't a member of our church, his daughter was. And he spent a lifetime alienated and separated from God. When I got to the hospital with my son, we had to pray because there was somebody there that would have thrown a block to prevent us from sharing the gospel with him, to hover and protect him from the truth. But then they left just for a moment. We didn't know this, but God arranged it. We went into the side, of, and there, when you're a clergy, you could visit in off hours. It was before the pandemic. So lady said, you go down to the elevator, and you go up there, and you go over there, and you go, I lost it. It all leaked out of my head. I'm a man, you know. My, I needed my wife there to keep the directions. But I, got, I wandered through the, and so we wandered and wandered, and we finally found our way to the man's room. He was lucid. He was clear. He was lost. The Lord gave me a scripture to instruct those in this life not to base their faith and the uncertainty of this world's riches, but in God who raised Jesus from the dead. So I told him that. He had spent a whole lifetime ignoring it. That moment he asked Jesus to come into his heart. A short time later he lapsed into a coma. The next day I went to visit him. He couldn't hear or think or speak and he died. He got saved. This is how serious this is for me. But I want to tell you on practical terms daily, number one, we do not have to be afraid of death because Jesus replaced hopelessness with certainty. People fear a lot of things. There are a lot of phobias. One of them is, is death. But Jesus' resurrection means that we don't have to fear death. Why? Because Jesus went there and he came back. Jesus conquered death. Jesus died for our sins. Adam fell, forfeited the prize, the, the consequence of collateral damage was alienation and separation from God. Jesus came to restore fellowship and connection with him. He's the opposite of cancel culture. He came to cancel out our sins to include us and to accept us. You want to know where the action is? Following Jesus. You don't want to know where the blessing is? In his presence. You want to know the best way to live? Ask a Japanese research scientist. He received communion for the first time. He got water baptized here. He was like a child. He was prestigious, amazing, developed man. And he humbled himself like a child. 
one of the great developers of this whole area here. His father has a name of a, a park named after him. One of the most prestigious and, compl- and accomplished men in 1995 came up at this altar and gave his heart to Jesus in the midst of a bunch of children. He said it was quite humbling. Well, the Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll exalt you at the proper time. I'm running out of time, but I have two more points I want to bring to you. Number two, practicality of today. It's because he's resurrected. We can trust everything God has said. Every promise he has said because Jesus replaced doubt with confidence. He really was raised from the dead and we really are raised up with him. You run into Christians. I ran in. It was peculiar. I've had my life changed. Jesus is Lord of my life. I went to, it was foreign to me. It was culture shock. I spoke to a woman who became a Christian in January. She and her friend played tennis for two, two years at the, golf, at the tennis court, and they had discussion about Jesus. And fortunately, she ran into a wide-awake Christian that did, wasn't off-putting with a bunch of church-speak and holier-than-thou uh, uh, you know, kind of attitudes, just a genuine Christian. And it compelled this woman. And the woman told me, she said, I'm a newbie. And I'm telling you, I, the contrast is amazing. I'm a new person. Jesus has changed my life. Jesus, it, if you call upon him and genuinely mean it, something can and will and does happen. Number three, last point. He said, because he's the resurrection, we can live with courage and expectation because he's alive. Let me finish with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. Jesus took that sting. Jesus took our guilt and shame. I was guilty, but Jesus stepped in and took my sentence upon himself. And he took that certificate of debt that was hostile against me, and he nailed it to a cross. That's why I'm preaching. That's why I'm a Christian. That's why we have this church. That's why this message goes out. That's why we're having Easter for you, to come to terms with this and to walk with him and to know him. And then to follow through, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the conclusion is that Jesus' resurrection holds so much for you and me. What are you facing? What are you dealing with? The lady with a terrible diagnosis. The woman coming through the the depression she had never experienced, but as a consequence of the medication from a a procedure that happens. The, 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 The alienation, the the distance, and now God's calling you to come back. Some of you, there's somebody you haven't been here for a long time. It's no coincidence you're here because this is your day of return. This is your day for help and hope. And I want to I say as we close, depression has to leave in Jesus' name. And there's somebody that's so hurt through the difficulty of life right now that you feel so wounded that you're at a place you've never been before. And I, I'm telling you, Jesus knows how to redeem our life from the pit. And even when you think you're at the lowest of all possible lows, Jesus went all the way to death. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about cancel culture. God allowed Jesus to actually be canceled because he took the sins of the world and he died. It wasn't just like a religious formal thing. 
some sort of hero thing. It was, it took Jesus everything. And when he died, he let out a loud cry. Even one of those harsh soldiers, Roman soldiers, said, surely this is the Son of God. Eventually, a Japanese research scientist came to understand Jesus. The agnostic came to know Jesus. The Jewish man realized the completion of his Judaism through Jesus. What do, what do men say that I am? But who do you say that he is? He's the resurrection and the life. I remember when I, I made that declaration of faith and the 8,000-pound gorilla of sin came off my back and Jesus set me free. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, I pray for breakthrough and blessing to come in each person's heart and life today. I pray, God, your sufficiency, your thoroughness, your help would come upon every woman and man in this room and online to come to know Jesus. I pray, God, that there would be a tremendous tenderness and receptivity, like what must have happened to C.S. Lewis and his cynicism and his intellectual dismissiveness. What you did for me, you do it again and again and again. We don't put it on anybody else. It's take hold of your mercy. That if we confess with our mouth, Jesus as Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Saved from sin and its consequences. Saved from the power and the authority of the devil. Saved from our own insecurities and our own foolishness. Saved from a futile way of life and brought into a purposeful, meaningful, significant way of life. Today, if you, if you want Jesus to be central to you, maybe a rededication, or maybe for the first time you say, Jesus, please come into my life. I want to lead you in a prayer. I want to lead you in a prayer of surrender and of repentance. Pray it only if you mean it. You're presenting yourself to God. Just right now, just pray this with me. Heavenly Father, I believe you exist. Though it's a mystery, I accept the story of Jesus. He suffered and died. He laid down his life for me, for us, now. Today I receive Jesus into my life. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Complete your work in me that you've started and help me to follow through by the power of your Holy Spirit all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.